The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. It's good to be here. Welcome to all of you. <clears throat> Tonight, what I'm going to speak about is the wisdom of stories. Most traditions that I know of have myths, stories, parables, ways of teaching that are not so direct. And I was inspired to do this talk by reading an article, an interview actually, of Rita Gross, who is a Buddhist scholar, teaches Buddhism, and um, she was interviewed by someone at the Berry Center for Buddhist Studies, which publishes an online journal uh, on each full moon. And she talked about stories, myths. One thing I like very much about Buddhist practice is that we're very honest and very willing to talk about our stories as myths. We don't have to um, absolutely believe that they're true. We use them as teaching stories. And it doesn't matter particularly if they're factually true, um, historically true. It's the point, the message that is being told by the story that is important. So... I want you to know that this is a big change for me. (laughs) When I was young, growing up in the Christian church, I used to get so frustrated with parables. I was of the personality that I wanted to do the right thing. And so if you just tell me what the right thing was, then I could do it. That would be very comfortable. Well, of course, Jesus' teachings, like the Buddha's teachings... Uh, were often in parables and not necessarily clearly understood. And that was very frustrating to me. I didn't want to have to sit with, you know, the possible meanings I wanted to know. Well, fortunately, I have grown and matured. And now in Buddhist practice, I love stories and myths and parables. I love the idea that things don't always have to be told in such a direct manner. Stories allow for a much broader way of understanding things. They allow some things to be said in ways that uh, people can understand more easily, but also that can be taken in many different ways. And they don't have to be just one certain way. So in um, Buddhist practice, we have what are known as the Jataka tales. The Jataka tales are a collection, 300 and some, I think, animal stories. Um, They come in, in each story in a book, or this happens to be a collection of Buddhist animal wisdom stories. And they're sort of like Aesop's fables. There are often um, morals or an ethical message to the story. But it's done in such a way that uh, 
You get an image, which is a value of stories. And they're kind of fun. They're kind of lighthearted. And I find it's easier to remember things with an image and also with a story. It's the story I remember. And that points to the message. So last week in San Jose, we were talking about skillful or wise effort. And a Buddhist story that comes to mind with uh, effort is the story of Nasruddin. I guess it's really a Sufi story. Mullah Nasruddin was the subject of many stories. And in this particular one, Mullah is down on the ground under a street light looking hard for something, for the key he dropped. And along came a friend of his and said, Mullah, what are you doing? And he said, I'm looking for my key. So the friend got down on his hands and knees and says, I'll help you. So they're both looking around and no key. So finally the friend says to Mullah, Mullah, where did you drop the key? And Mullah replied, in the house, but there's more light out here. (laughs) It's a great story. And, of course, I get this visual image of Mullah on the ground looking around for the key. And it very much points to how so often we can waste our energy looking for something or doing something that is not productive. And like Mullah, we may answer, but there's more light out here. (laughs) And of course, it doesn't matter if the key's dropped in the house. It doesn't matter how much light there is outside. But probably each of us can take that story and recognize times, areas in our lives where we may not apply wise effort. We might be putting our efforts in a not-so-productive place. So Rita starts off by talking about another Buddhist myth, this from the Zen tradition, in which there's a myth, a story, that the teachings of the Mahayana tradition The Mahayana tradition is said to have arisen several hundred years after the original teachings. We practice Theravada, and these are considered the original or the oldest teachings of the Buddha. The Mahayana teachings arose several years later. And the myth is that they were securely hidden under the sea in Naga territory. Nagas are sea serpents. And they were safely kept there because the people were not ready to hear these particular teachings. That makes them very special, doesn't it? But Nagarjuna rescued these teachings in the second century. So, of course, it's a myth. (laughs) Teachings were not hidden at the bottom of the sea or in the sea in Naga territory. But again, 
um, telling it as a story gives a special emphasis to these teachings, doesn't it? And lets us know that uh, these teachings arose later because it was important for the people to have a very basic, rooted understanding of what the Buddha taught before these teachings could uh, be accepted. And these teachings have to do with um, the Bodhisattva, um, some other ways of talking about Buddhist practice, talking about enlightenment, that are different, are a little different from the Theravada teachings. Not different in substance, but differently told. In Zen practice, as you probably know, there are koans. And koans are a little bit like stories, in that koans are questions that don't necessarily have an answer. Or the answer can be um, very obscure. And students are encouraged to just sit with this question, just hang out with it. Sometimes for hours or days, sometimes perhaps for years. And when the student comes back to the teacher, often the answer is given in uh, what may sound to us a very obscure way. So the whole process can be quite indirect. But there's a way of understanding these koans that when someone works with a teacher um, can get. So Rita said one thing that I'm going to suggest as the takeaway phrase or takeaway sentence for tonight. She suggests that our task is to take our stories seriously, but not literally. And I very much like that. So by saying that stories are stories or myths or we don't know if they're true or not, or it doesn't matter if they're true or not, we're not in any way denigrating the power of the story. Like Joseph Campbell talked about the power of myth. It's the same idea. Just because something is considered a myth or a story does not in any way make it less valuable. It's different, perhaps, but certainly not less valuable. So it's important that we take our stories seriously, but not necessarily literally. And she said, literalism and fundamentalism are toxic to a deep and profound spiritual practice. Interesting. Literalism and fundamentalism are toxic to a deep and profound spiritual practice. In other words, our spiritual practice, spiritual teachings, are much deeper 
They're much broader. They're much more significant than just a very literal interpretation. And when people, Buddhists or any other tradition, take things so very literally, then they become points of argument, sometimes points of fighting. Wars, unfortunately, have been fought over whether this doctrine is true or that doctrine is true or this is literally true or it is not literally true. So one teaching that comes to mind is in the Christian tradition, you know, there's the story of the virgin birth. And for some traditions, it's extremely important. The virgin birth is the way it was, period. Other traditions say, don't think so. And those two can war, can fight. In the Buddhist tradition, we talk about the story, the myth of the Buddha's birth. And in that myth, the Buddha was said to have been born from the left side of his mother while she's holding on to a tree in the park. Well, it's probably not any more true than the virgin birth. But what do these, bo- these myths both point to? From my perspective, they point to the fact that these are very special births. These are not your ordinary births. These are special. The person being born... Jesus in one, Buddha in the other, or Siddhartha at that time. These are special people. They are not necessarily of this world. And so there's a way that we can uh, appreciate the power, the importance, if you will, of these men, of these births, through the myth of their births. And we don't have to hang on to whether they are literally true or not. So another thing Rita talked about was how the understanding of impermanence and interdependent origination are important concepts in Buddhist practice. One of the first things we come to recognize is the absolute impermanence of everything. Everything in this temporospatial world. And that includes our beliefs, our stories, our ideas. And everything is interdependent. So nothing arises on its own. Everything arises because of causes and conditions. We say, this arises because that is. That ceases because this ceases. And so with those understandings, then, we see that no doctrine, (laughs) no belief is absolutely fixed 
and solid and unchanging. Everything is changing. And stories can be very adaptable to a changing world. Stories are very culturally and historically determined. So they can be the same story or the same teaching can be told by a similar story but out of very different cultures or very different traditions. So they might sound different, but they're actually, um, the, the message is very, very much the same. With stories, we're not limited to just one way of seeing something or one way of hearing thing, something. So I can't remember if it was last year or two years ago, Bhikkhu Analyo was here. Some of you may have come to hear him. Um, Bhikkhu Analyo is another Buddhist scholar who teaches at the University of Hamburg. And <clears throat> one night I came to his teachings, and what he did was tell the story of the bamboo acrobat, which is a well-known story in, in Buddhist lore. And he told it from the traditional interpretation, understanding. And then he opened the time up for all of the attendees. And he asked for people's perspectives, people's input. And it was very interesting. For the next hour or so, I think it was, we heard from many different people what their take on this particular story was. And of course, as time went on, um, people saw more and more little details or little ways of seeing the story that, you know, not all of them fit for me, but that doesn't matter. They were other people's perspectives and interpretations. And it was very, very interesting to see how different people coming from perhaps a slightly different perspective, a slightly different experience in life, could see something very, very differently. And Bhikkhu Analyo made it clear that there's no right or wrong way to see the story. There are many different perspectives. And it might be that as the story was originally told, there was a particular message, but that doesn't have to be the only message or the correct message. There can be many different messages coming from one particular story. And of course, each of us can hear things, take things in, in the way that's valuable for us. And it may not be valuable for somebody else, but if it's valuable for us, that's what's important. It makes me think of of the stories of Ajahn Chah. Ajahn Chah, a very revered, respected teacher in the Thai forest tradition, was said, it was said that um, the way he would guide his students was he might say to one, "Mm, a little more to the right, 
This was maybe during walking meditation. But to another one, he might say, "Mm, a little more to the left, depending on where they were and what they were doing. And you can imagine if somebody heard that, heard um, Ajahn Chah telling one person to do a little more of this and told somebody else to do a little more of that, in my younger days, that would have been very upsetting to me. (laughs) Why would he tell somebody to do this and somebody to do that? How can it be both ways? Well, of course, it can. (laughs) If somebody's walking and they're walking too much to the left, it can be very appropriate to move to the right, and vice versa. And the same with other things. So in stories, we have a lot more latitude. We have a lot more space for teaching, for suggesting things. I've been recently very drawn to stories, and often when I'm teaching, I like to tell a story or read a story. Now, I have to confess, it doesn't always go over so well. People sometimes think they have outgrown stories and don't necessarily think that's a very appropriate way to teach. But if someone will stay with it, often then they find there's great value to it. Stories can be made up. Gill's very good at making up stories, as you might know. And to that end, he has published this book, A Monastery Within, which is a collection of stories that Gill uses in his teaching. And many of them are made up, if not all. Perhaps they're all made up, I don't know. (laughs) But Gill is very good at taking something from here, something from there, something from there, and making a story out of it. And um, it can be very, very wise teaching, very instructive. So I'd like to read you one. Uh, In this book, A Monastery Within, the teachings are all done or taken at this monastery. And it happens that there is an abbess of the monastery. A very nice way for Gil to suggest that monasteries don't always have abbots. They can have abbesses. In other words, female teachers can be just as important, as valuable as male teachers. So, this particular story is called The Deer and the Tiger. There was once a monk who was known for his relaxed and trusting nature. No matter what was happening, the monk would smile. If circumstances were challenging, he would say, If we can accept how things are and keep a positive attitude, Everything we need will unfold on its own. 
Once when the monk was on a month-long retreat in a hermitage deep in the forest, he witnessed a remarkable interaction between a deer and a tiger. The deer, injured, came stumbling into the clearing in front of the hermitage. Some time later, a tiger wandered into the clearing and saw the wounded deer. The monk held his breath, convinced that the tiger would surely kill and eat the deer. The deer, too, was clearly worried. But as it could no longer walk, the deer accepted its fate, lying very still in the grass. To the monk's surprise, the tiger spent the next few days standing guard over the deer until the deer was well enough to wander off again on its own. The monk was elated at this sight, as it seemed to validate his idea that if we could only accept whatever happens fully enough, the boundless goodness of the universe would take care of us. It's probably a teaching we have all heard and accepted. A few days later, lightning struck a neighboring hermitage only a hundred feet away. At first, the roof smoldered and smoked. The monk accepted this. Then the rest of the hut started burning. The monk accepted this, too. The monk, uh, soon, the entire hermitage was gone, and the nun who lived there was slightly injured from attempting to battle the flames. When the abbess came to investigate the fire, she asked the monk why he didn't go and help put out the fire. In reply, the monk told the story of the tiger and the deer and how it had taught him the importance of surrendering and accepting things in the way the deer had done. You fool, said the abbess. Certainly there are times when you should be like the deer. But if you are to be a spiritually mature person, you should also know when to be like the tiger. With that, the abbess sent the monk away. Don't come back until you know how to be a tiger. Only when you accept this part of yourself can you understand what it really means to accept things as they are? I think that's a powerful story. It's so easy to take a teaching like accepting things as they are, right? Which is, which is a very important teaching but carry it to an extreme or carry it to an nth degree where we allow a hermitage to burn down with somebody inside it. And isn't it true that there's a tiger within each of us? And sometimes we think that that's not spiritually appropriate. (laughs) 
that if we're going to be spiritual people, we have to be like the deer. We have to be very calm and very accepting all of the time, no matter what happens. But it's not true, is it? Or we can be very accepting and fight the fire with all our might. Which reminds me of the fire at Tassajara a couple of years ago. Where clearly the monks in residence there did all they could to save the buildings. And they saved everything but two small buildings. But they worked very hard to fight that fire and, and keep it from burning down the buildings. So certainly there are times when we need to be fierce like a tiger. And spiritual maturity is knowing when <laughs> to be the deer and when to be the tiger. So I'd like to ask, does anybody have uh, a thought or a comment about that particular story? Yes. Well, it's the tiger. So, a tiger by nature would be fierce, and you would think, consume the deer, right? But the tiger didn't do that. Yeah. So, really, I think that's that's the piece of the story that um, that's the real puzzle. Right? So how do, how do you be the tiger? The tiger is fierce. The tiger would be hungry. The tiger would attack. Uh, and know that, but then in turn not do that. Right? So how does that, how does that relate to uh, taking action and fighting the fire? Where the tiger didn't take action, or did it? I mean, the tiger took some action. Right? It did. What was, what was its action? And was it against its own nature? Very good point. Mm -hmm. That's a very valuable way to look at it. Somebody, uh, I told this story last night, and somebody suggested, had the tiger been hungry, you know, starving, gone without food for a while, or had cubs, it might have been very different. And that's part of the interdependence, you know, and part of the, um, the arising of things. Anything else? Anybody else? Mm-hmm. I, I just appreciate it because it reminds me of something that I struggle with all the time. And um, this, this practice is very accepting and encourages uh, accepting dark sides and shadows and incorporating uh, your struggles just that they happen and that they're okay to live side by side with. And yet, um, I like this because it has a little bit of the uh, aggression in it to um, 
that I'm looking for because I'm, I have a very addictive personality and I love opiates and it's, they're easy to get mm. and, and part of me in sittings and listening to these messages thinks it's okay, accept that as who you are, you know, um, and, and take the, the dross with the gold, and you can, you can go get some of those pills if you want, um, because it's, you know, part of your dark side, and, and embrace <laughs> it. And, and yet there's part of me that fights like a tiger for sobriety yes. and to stay clean and stay away. And I'm happy to hear that story as I'm on my journey. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a great example. Yes. Because it can be one thing to accept that you have an addictive personality or that you are so drawn to opiates. But that doesn't mean, okay, then go take them. And so I admire the tiger in you, that fierceness that says, I'm not going to do that. Even though maybe it's very, very challenging and sometimes everything within you wants it. But that's when the tiger appears and you say, no. Yeah. Uh, this just gives a, um, a metaphor to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Thank you. Um, so a quote from Black Elk that Rita gives this they tell and whether it happened so or not I do not know but if you think about it you can see that it's true the truth is larger than than the literal or the exact factual. The truth can be larger than um, just the words or just the fact. So I have a couple of other stories for you. This is from a book that's edited by Christina Feldman and Jack Cornfield, Stories of the Spirit, Stories of the Heart. And there are many, many stories in here from um, many different traditions. There are Sufi stories and Jewish stories and Christian stories and Buddhist stories and... What else? Some I don't I don't know. This is very short. Traditional German story. A man whose axe was missing suspected his neighbor's son. The boy walked like a thief, looked like a thief, and spoke 
like a thief. But the man found his axe while he was digging in the valley. And the next time he saw his neighbor's son, the boy walked, looked, and spoke like any other child. That can also speak to another way we tell stories. You know, often we talk... Often we talk about the stories that we tell ourselves or we tell each other. And these are not teaching stories, but misinterpretations, I like to call them. So very much like this story where, from his perspective, the boy looked, act, talked, and talked like a, a thief. But that was just a story, wasn't it? That was just something he got in his head. And all of us get things like that in our heads all the time, don't we? And so often we, we believe it as if it were fact. And it can be very hard to get these things out of our minds. Sometimes, even when the axe is found, people will hang on to that story that the neighbor's son looks and acts like a thief and therefore must be a thief. So I think it's important that, that we make the distinction between a teaching story or myth and the misinterpretations that we tell ourselves. Last night, after our meeting, somebody was telling me that about another story um, that, in fact, takes a very bloody massacre, and the storyteller, the leader or king or whatever, turns it totally around and makes it almost a virtuous act. Talks about the heroism and the bravery and the incredible strength of the warriors and etc., etc. And the people believed it. When in fact it had been a horrible crime, a horrible massacre. And that happens, doesn't it? We can hear that all the time where an event can get turned around by somebody manipulating it and make it entirely different from what actually happened. So these are interpretations we have to be wary of, we have to be very clear about. And these are not the kind of stories that we're talking about when we talk about the wisdom or the power of stories. Um, here's another Nasrudin. Nasrudin was now an old man looking back on his life. He sat with his friends in the tea shop telling his story. When I was young, I was fiery. I wanted to awaken everyone. 
I prayed to Allah to give me the strength to change the world. In midlife, I awoke one day and realized my life was half over and I had changed no one. So I prayed to Allah to give me the strength to change those close around me who so much needed it. Alas, now I am old and my prayer is simpler. You can imagine, right? Allah, I ask, please give me the strength to at least change myself. Here's another one of my favorites, an oft-told story. There was this Indian who was sitting by a river fishing. The white guy used to see him there every day, and whoever he was with, he would point over to the Indian and say to his friend, Lo, the poor Indian. So one day when he was alone, he went over to the Indian and talked to him. What are you doing? he asked. Fishing, the Indian grunted. That's all you ever do, the white guy said. And the Indian just grunted. So the white guy said, you ought to get a job and work. The Indian asked, why? The white guy said, you'll make a lot of money. The Indian said, so? The white guy said, you can invest it and make yourself a lot more money. What do you think the Indian said to that? He said, so? Well, the white guy blew his stack. So, he told him, if you're rich, you can do anything you want to. The Indian looked at the white man then turned back to his fishing. I'm doing that now, he said. And this is one of those stories I've heard tell with, told with different characters, you know. And this time it's an Indian and white guy, but other times it's somebody else of a different tribe or a different ethnic background. So again, are there comments, thoughts about this story or stories in general, myths? Do you have a favorite story that speaks to you? I'll tell you another one. This is from the Zen tradition. 
Ryokan never preached to or reprimanded anyone. Once his brother asked Ryokan to visit his house and speak to his delinquent son. Ryokan came, but did not say a word of admonition to the boy. He stayed overnight and prepared to leave the next morning. As the wayward nephew was lacing Ryokan's straw sandals, he felt a warm drop of water. Glancing up, he saw Ryokan looking down at him, his eyes full of tears. Ryokan then returned home, and the nephew changed for the better. That particular story reminds me of Plum Village in France, where Thich Nhat Hanh lives. And I've not been there, but it's my understanding that he takes in delinquent young people, I don't know, just boys or boys and girls, and <clears throat> treats them similarly in that they are brought into the community, made a part of the community, are made to feel important and valuable. They're not punished. They're not told what they've done wrong. They're just brought in and very much um, loved and accepted by the community. And it's powerful. It's very, very powerful. I, I don't know statistics, but I know that many of these young people leave Plum Village healed. We sometimes get very confused and think that punishment is so important. Such a valuable teacher. And yet, many of us as parents probably have found that discipline or teaching is far more effective than punishment. And certainly that was true in in this case. So I'll just say again what Rita said about the importance of taking our stories seriously, but not literally. One of the stories that in our tradition I really enjoy is every year at Visak, we tell the story of the Buddha's birth, his enlightenment, and his death. And for me, that's a part of Visak. You know, we don't have a lot of rituals in the Theravada tradition. But Visak, which is on the full moon in May and commemorates the Buddha's birth, his enlightenment, and death, is one of our, is our uh, most important holiday or um, tradition day. And very much like in the Christian tradition, telling the, the Christmas story every year is so important. For me, telling the stories of the Buddha's birth and enlightenment and death are, um, are such a part of the celebration and the tradition. And I never get tired of hearing or telling, telling them. 
that speaks to me. That's the power of stories when we don't get tired of hearing them, just like kids. You know, they love stories and they never get tired of hearing their favorite story over and over and over again. So, we have one more minute, one last chance. Anybody have a comment or a story? (laughs) Um, I wanted to comment on the interpretation of the story about the axe, the lost axe, mm-hmm. and changing the, perspe- the perception of the, of the boy, because I was interested to hear you uh, speak about that in terms of uh, understanding truth in stories and that the perspective of the storyteller can alter how you would interpret the, the, the telling of the story. And, uh, and my kind of interpretation of that is that your perspective towards somebody could shape how you act towards them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that if you know, he's thinking the thief and he's got that in his mind, the way he's going to behave towards the boy is going to be very different. Um, and that can very much affect how you interact with people and then ultimately how they do behave around you. That's right. That's right. That's a very important point. Happens a lot with children, doesn't it? when we expect them to behave in a certain way, to fail or be naughty or whatever, very often they do. And when I, I used to work with children, and I have heard them say, well, my mom thinks I do, so I might as well. Whatever that is, you know. Yeah, so you're very right. Yeah, and I think that's, the important reason that it's so important that we see um, the interpretations we tell ourselves, the stories we tell ourselves, because exactly for that reason, if we, if we don't see them clearly, if we believe them, we buy into them, then we do end up treating people from that perspective. And <laughs> probably more often than not, it's wrong. It's a misinterpretation. And then the other person responds out of the way they were treated and this whole big cycle of misunderstanding happens. And it can be tragic. I mean, relationships can be destroyed. People's lives can be destroyed. So it's very important. We're all prone to these interpretations. I mean, we all do it. What's important is that we recognize we're doing it and therefore not buy into it, not believe it, or not take it so um, seriously as if it were gospel truth, but at least check it out. So thank you all. Let's just be quiet for a moment. <laughs>